Today on Legalese, we have another installment of my Supreme Court wrap-up. I will be breaking down the Supreme Court landmark decision regarding the Indian Commerce Clause as it relates to the recent case of Holland v. Bracken. Hey, greetings everybody. Welcome back once again to Legalese. As always, I am your host, Bob. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Now, if you happen to be new to my channel, let me bid a special welcome to you. Uh, This is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events and other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now, furthermore, if you happen to be new to my channel, let me quickly explain uh, what this video is going to be about. You see, every fall, uh, I do an annual episode that I call my Supreme Court Roundup, where at the beginning of each term, I go through the, you know, 80 to 100 merits cases that the Supreme Court takes on every term, and I pick out the handful of cases that I believe have the potential to be landmarks in constitutional law, as well as uh, any other especially interesting or important cases. And we go through these cases together uh, and we discuss their history, their significance, and we go through the facts of the case and whatever information can be gleaned uh, from the search petition. Now, likewise, Throughout spring and summer, as the court issues its opinions in the cases, we will revisit them in a series of videos that I call my Supreme Court Wrap-Up, and we will discuss the outcome, the importance, and the likely effect that each of these decisions will have. Now, one of the cases that I discussed in my fall roundup was Hallen v. Bracken, which the court issued its opinion on last week. So we will be wrapping up that case here today. Now, there are a few key aspects to this case we will be talking about. We will be looking at what is the Indian Child Welfare Act? What is the Indian Commerce Clause? We will then get to the case of Holland v. Bracket itself. We will look very quickly uh, again at the question presented uh, and the facts of the case. And then we will get to the opinion of the court. So, let's start with the Indian Child Welfare Act. What is it? The Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978, also commonly referred to as ICWA, is a United States federal law that governs jurisdiction over the removal of American Indian children from their families in custody, foster care, and adoption cases. Now, it gives tribal governments exclusive jurisdiction over children who reside on or are domiciled on a reservation, and it gives concurrent but presumptive jurisdiction over foster care placement proceedings for Native American children who do not live on the reservation. So let's look at what the Indian Commerce Clause is. And before we can look at that, I suppose we should just probably look at what the Commerce Clause itself is. 
So the Commerce Clause uh, in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 is comprised of three distinct enumerated powers that individually grant Congress the power to regulate commerce between the United States and three forms of sovereign entities, the states, foreign nations, and the Indian tribes. Now, these are best understood by interpreting the clauses according to its own constituent parts. So, for example, the Indian Commerce Clause is just a section that reads the Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with the Indian tribes. Now, the Supreme Court has long assumed that the Indian Commerce Clause, along with the Treaty Clause in Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2, grant Congress plenary and exclusive power over Indian affairs. And this was a position that was recently affirmed in a landmark case known as United States v. Lara in 2004. And according to, well, me, technically, uh, this is from my book, Constitutional Sleight of Hand, um, the original meaning of the Indian Commerce Clause, uh, we could start by turning to what Justice Joseph Story had to say about it. And that was that the power to regulate trade and commerce with the Indian tribes passed naturally from the crown to the federal government after the revolution. And he argued in his commentaries on the Constitution of the United States that this clause confirmed that proposition. Furthermore, in Worcester v. Georgia in 1832, Chief Justice John Marshall would confirm the supremacy of the federal authority over the states in regard to the Indians. In the late 19th century, the Supreme Court would go even further. It asserted that the power over the Indian tribes was an attribute of sovereignty unencumbered by the delegated powers doctrine of the Constitution, according to the precedent set in United States v. Kagama in 1886. So, let's get to the actual case of Holland itself. So, we're going to start real quickly here by revisiting uh, the question presented for Holland v. Bracken. So, it starts out by making a couple points where it says uh, that Congress enacted the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978 to protect the best interests of Indian children and to promote the stability and security of Indian tribes and families. The provision of 25 U.S.C. Section 1912 will establish minimum federal standards for the removal of Indian children from their families, while 25 U.S.C. Section 1915A and B establish default preferences for placement of such children in adoptive or foster homes. And the statute also contains several record-keeping provisions found at 25 U.S.C. Section 1915E and 1951A. And this case uh, was three states and seven individuals who brought a suit asserting that these and other ICWA provisions were facially unconstitutional. Now, the district court agreed and granted declaratory relief. However, the en banc court of appeals would reject most of the plaintiff's challenges, but did affirm, in some respects, 
by an equally divided vote the judgment declaring the foregoing provisions invalid. Now, with all that in mind, the questions presented are, one, whether various provisions of ICWA, namely the minimum standards of Section 1912, the placement preference provisions of Section 1915, and the record-keeping provisions of Sections 1915 and 1951, violate the anti-commandeering doctrine of the Tenth Amendment. Second, whether the individual plaintiffs have Article Three standing to challenge ICWA's placement preferences for other Indian families and for Indian foster homes. And third, whether Section 1915, A3, and B3 are rationally related to a legitimate government interest and therefore consistent with equal protection. Now, this case arises from three separate child custody proceedings governed by the Indian Child Welfare Act. Now, this federal statute aimed to keep Indian children connected to Indian families. ICWA governs uh, state court adoption and foster care proceedings involving Indian children. And among other things, the Act requires placement of an Indian child according to the Act's hierarchical preferences unless the state court finds good cause to depart from them. Under those preferences, Indian families or institutions from any tribe, not just the tribe to which the child has a tie, outrank unrelated non-Indian or non-Indian institutions. So, as uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett said in the controlling opinion of the court, uh, this case is about children who are among the most vulnerable, those in the child welfare system. And in the usual course, it is the state courts that would apply state law when placing children in foster or adoptive homes. But when the child is an Indian, the federal statute, namely the Indian Child Welfare Act, should govern. Now, among other things, this law requires a state court to place an Indian child with an Indian caretaker if one is available. And that is so, even if the child is already living with a non-Indian family, and the state court thinks it's in the child's best interest to stay there. Now, before us in this particular case, what we had was a birth mother, foster and adoptive parents, and the state of Texas challenging the uh, Indian Child Welfare Act on multiple constitutional grounds. They argued that it exceeds federal authority, infringes state sovereignty, and discriminates on the base of basis of race. Now, the United States, joined by several Indian tribes, would defend the law. And these issues are very complicated, uh, so we will be going through them for all of the details as this video goes on. But the bottom line here was that the court would reject all of the petitioner's challenges to the statute, some on the merits and others for a lack of standing. 
So the petitioners challenged ICWA as unconstitutional on multiple grounds. They asserted that Congress lacks authority to enact ICWA and that several of ICWA's requirements violate the anti-commandeering principle of the Tenth Amendment. They argued that ICWA employs racial classification that unlawfully hinder non-Indian families from fostering or adopting Indian children. And they challenged Section 1915C, which was the provision that allows tribes to alter the prioritization order on the grounds that it violates the non-delegation doctrine. And so, uh, last Thursday, the Supreme Court would go on to issue its decision in Holland v. Bracken. This was a 7-2 decision up that upheld provisions of the Indian Child Welfare Act that governed adoptions of children with some connection to an Indian tribe. Now, the opinion in total stretched to 133 pages. Justice Barrett's majority opinion was 34 pages. Justice Gorsuch's concurrence, which was joined in part by Justice Kagan and Jackson, was 38 pages long. Justice Kavanaugh wrote a short solo concurrence, and Justice Thomas wrote a 40-page solo dissent, while Justice Alito wrote a 10-page dissent. Now, I, I bring all of those things up just to make two quick points for you here. The first is that this video is just an objective case brief about the merits of the case and the majority opinion. The second is that because the majority is so long and multifaceted, I really don't have time to discuss either Gorsuch or Kavanaugh's concurrences, nor Thomas's or Alito's dissenting opinions. So this will be a summary of the controlling majority opinion authored by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And if anyone would like another video discussing any of those concurrences uh, or dissents or uh, want me to weigh in with my own opinion on the case, let me know in the comments. So, in this case, uh, there were three primary holdings. First, the court would decline to disturb the Fifth Circuit's conclusion that ICWA is consistent with Congress's Article I authority. Second, the petitioners' anti-commandeering challenges which address three categories of ICWA provisions were also rejected. And third, the court does not reach the merits of petitioners' two additional claims, an equal protection challenge to ICWA's placement preferences and a non-delegation challenge to Section 1915C. That is the provision allowing tribes to alter the placement preferences because no party before the court had standing to raise those issues. So, we begin with the petitioner's claim that ICWA exceeds Congress's power under Article 1. Now, in a long line of cases, uh, the court has characterized Congress's power to legislate with respect to the Indian tribes as, quote, plenary and exclusive, end quote. 
And that is according to the precedent set in United States v. Lara in 2004. And the court's past precedent leaves little doubt uh, that Congress's power in this field is muscular, superseding both tribal and state authority. To be clear, however, uh, Justice Barrett stresses that plenary does not mean free-floating. A power unmoored from the Constitution would lack both justification and limits. So like the rest of his legislative powers, Congress's authority to regulate Indians must derive from the Constitution, not the atmosphere. Now, the court's precedent traces this power to multiple sources. One is the Indian Commerce Clause, which authorizes Congress to regulate commerce with the Indian tribes. The court has interpreted the Indian Commerce Clause to reach not only trade, but certain Indian affairs too. Notably, the court has declined to treat the Indian Commerce Clause as interchangeable with the Interstate Commerce Clause. While under the Interstate Commerce Clause, the states retain some authority over trade, the court has explained that virtually all authority over Indian commerce and Indian tribes will lie with the federal government. The other source of power is the Treaty Clause. Now, the Treaty Clause provides that the president shall have the power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties, and this provides the second source of power over Indian affairs found in Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2. Now, the court also noted that principles inherent in the Constitution's structure empower Congress to act in the field of Indian affairs. And at the founding, Indian affairs were more an aspect of military and foreign policy than a subject of domestic or municipal law. And the court posited that Congress's legislative authority might rest in part on the Constitution's adoption of pre-constitutional powers necessarily inherent in any federal government, namely powers that this court has described as necessary concomitants of nationality, and that is according to the precedents that in United States v. Curtis Wright Export Corporation from 1936. And finally, the trust relationship between the United States and the Indian people informs the exercise of legislative power. The contours of this special relationship are undefined. But in sum, the court says, Congress's power to legislate with respect to Indians is well established and broad. And consistent with that breadth, we have not doubted Congress's ability to legislate across a wide uh, range of areas, including criminal law, domestic violence, employment, property, tax, and trade. Indeed, we have only rarely concluded that a challenge statute exceeds Congress's power to regulate Indian affairs. And they say that the petitioners contend that ICWA exceeds Congress's power. 
and that's the principal theory uh, and the one that was accepted ultimately by Justice Alito as well as the dissenters uh, in the en banc Fifth Circuit uh, found that ICWA treads on the state's authority over family law. And while domestic relations have traditionally been governed by state law, thus, federal power over Indians stops where the state power over family begins, or so the argument goes. Now, in the majority opinion, uh, Justice Barrett uh, notes that it is true that Congress lacks a general power over domestic relations and, as a result, responsibility for regulating marriage and child custody remains primarily with the states. But the Constitution does not erect a firewall around family law. In fact, we have specifically recognized Congress's power to displace the jurisdiction of state courts and adoption proceedings involving Indian children. And so, they say petitioners are trying to turn the general observation that Congress's Article I powers rarely touch state family law into a constitutional carve-out that a family law is wholly exempt from federal regulation. Uh, Justice Beers says that that argument for her is a non-starter. As James Madison said to the members of the first Congress, when the Constitution conferred a power on Congress, they might exercise it, although it should interfere with the laws or even the Constitution of the, of the states. And family law is no exception. Petitioners also assert that ICWA takes the commerce out of the Indian Commerce Clause. Their consistent refrain is that, quote, children are not commodities that can be traded. They say, rhetorically speaking, this is a powerful point because, of course, children are not commercial products. Legally, though, it is beside the point. As the court has already explained in their precedent, it states that Congress's power under the Indian Commerce Clause encompasses not only trade, but also Indian affairs. And they end this section by saying that if there are arguments that ICWA exceeds Congress's authority, as our precedent stands today, petitioners do not make them. We therefore decline to disturb the Fifth Circuit's conclusion that ICWA is consistent with Article 1. So, now we will turn to the petitioner's host of anti-commandeering arguments, which break down into three general categories. First, petitioners challenge certain requirements that apply in involuntary proceedings to place a child in foster care, or terminate parental rights. The requirement that an initiating party demonstrate, quote, active efforts to keep the Indian family together 
serve notice of the proceeding on the parent or Indian custodian and tribe and demonstrate by a heightened burden of proof and expert testimony that the child is likely to suffer serious emotional or physical damage if the parent or Indian custodian retains custody. Second, the petitioners challenge ICWA's placement preferences. They claim the Congress can neither force state agencies to find preferred placements for Indian children, nor require state courts to apply federal standards when making custody determinations. And third, they insist that Congress cannot force state courts to maintain or transmit to the federal government records of custody proceedings involving Indian children. So, according to the petitioners, this directs state and local agencies to provide extensive services to the parents of Indian children. Now, the court found that it is well established that the Tenth Amendment bars Congress from, quote, commanding the state's officers or those of their political subdivisions to administer or enforce a federal regulatory program, end quote. And the active efforts provision, petitioners say, does just that. Now, the court goes on to say that the petitioner's argument has a fundamental flaw because to succeed, they must show that Section 1912D harnesses a state's legislative or executive authority. But the provision applies to any party who initiates an involuntary proceeding, thus sweeping in private individuals and agencies as well as government entities. And a demand that either public or private actors can satisfy is unlikely to require the use of sovereign power. And notwithstanding the term any party, petitioners insist that Section 1912D is best read as a command to these states. They contend that, as a practical matter, states do not, states, not private parties, initiate the vast majority of involuntary proceedings. And despite the breadth of the language, the argument goes states are obviously the parties to whom the statute refers. However, legislation that applies even-handedly to state and private actors does not typically implicate the Tenth Amendment. Now, furthermore, the petitioners raise a Tenth Amendment challenge to Section 1915, which dictates placement preferences for Indian children. According to petitioners, this provision orders state agencies to perform a diligent search for placements that satisfy ICWA's hierarchy. And just as Congress cannot compel state officials to search a database to determine the lawfulness of gun sales, the petitioners argue that Congress cannot compel state officials to search for a federally preferred placement. Now, Justice Beer goes on to say that this argument runs headlong into the Constitution.
She notes that the Supremacy Clause requires that the laws of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary notwithstanding. Thus, when Congress enacts a valid statute pursuant to its Article I powers, state law is naturally preempted to the extent of any conflict with federal statute. But, that a federal law modifies a state law cause of action does not limit its preemptive effect. Now, finally, we will be turning to ICWA's record-keeping provisions. In Section 1951A, they require courts to provide the Secretary of the Interior with a copy of the final order in the adoptive placement of any Indian child. And Section 1915E requires the state to maintain a record evidencing the efforts to comply with the order of preference specified by ICWA. The record shall be made available at any time upon the request of the Secretary or Indian Child's Tribe. Now, petitioners argue that Congress cannot conscript, conscript the states into federal service by assigning them record-keeping tasks. Now, the anti-commandeering doctrine applies distinctively to a state court's adjudicative responsibilities. And as the court goes on to explain, this distinction is evident in the Supremacy Clause, which refers specifically to state judges. And from the beginning, this text was manifested in practice that, as originally understood, the Constitution allowed Congress to require state judges to enforce federal prescriptions insofar as those prescriptions are related to matters appropriate for the judicial power. And, in Prince, we indicated that this principle may extend to tasks that are ancillary to a quintessentially adjudicative task, such as recording, registering, and certifying documents. And the petitioners reject Prince's observations and insist that there is a distinction between the rules of decision, which a state court must follow, and record-keeping requirements, which they can ignore. But Prince described numerous historical examples of Congress imposing record-keeping and reporting requirements on state courts. And the early Congresses passed a law directing state courts to perform certain tasks fairly described as ancillary to the court's adjudicative duties. <laughs> Duty. For example, state courts were required to process and record applications for United States citizenship according to the Act of March 26, 1790. And federal law 
would impose other duties on state courts unrelated to immigration and naturalization, such as the Judiciary Act of 1789, which authorized any justice of the peace or other magistrate of any of the United States to arrest and imprison federal offenders required the judge to set bail at the defendant's request. But there is more. Shortly after ratification, Congress passed a detailed statute that required state court judges to gather and certify reports. This was the act of July 20th, 1790. And these early congressional enactments provide contemporaneous and weighty evidence of the Constitution's meaning. And collectively, they demonstrate that the Constitution does not prohibit the federal government from imposing adjudicative tasks on state courts. Now, this makes sense against the, Madis against the backdrop of the Madisonian Compromise that since Article 3 established only the Supreme Court and made inferior federal courts optional, Congress could have relied almost entirely on state courts to apply federal law. Had Congress taken that course, it would have had to rely on state courts to perform adjudication-adjacent tasks as well. And so the court goes on to confirm what was suggested in Prince. Congress may impose ancillary record-keeping requirements related to state court proceedings without violating the Tenth Amendment. And here, ICWA's record-keeping requirements are comparable in kind and in degree to our historical examples, such as the Naturalization Law of Section 1951A requiring the state court to transmit to the secretary a copy of a court order along with basic demographic information. And Section 1915E likewise requires the state to record a limited amount of information. The efforts made to comply with the placement preferences and provide the information to the secretary and to the child's tribe is in accordance with the court's precedent in Prince. And these duties are ancillary to the state court's obligation to conduct child custody proceedings in compliance with ICWA. Thus, ICWA's record-keeping requirements are consistent with the Tenth Amendment. But the bottom line in this case was that the controlling majority would reject all of the petitioner's challenges to the statute, some on the merits and others for lack of standing. All right, well, that was all I have for you guys today. Uh, I hope you found that interesting and informative. Uh, and if you did, if you could just take a second and do all of those things that helped to trigger Al Gore's rhythm, uh, you know, smash that thumbs up button if you liked it, uh, hit the thumbs down button if you hated it, uh, subscribe to the channel. And of course, uh, please feel free to leave me a comment on the video. I, I really enjoy the chance getting to interact with you guys. So 
Anyways, until next time, this has been Bob for Legalese, talking about Colin V. Bracken, and of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda S. Like Freddie Mercury. <laughs>